0: Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure to welcome Bennett Fitch to the podcast. Welcome, Bennett. How's it going? It's going good. Thank you for joining us. So Bennett, for those that are unfamiliar with you, you are Director of Product Development and LPD Services at Noria Corporation. For those of you that are not familiar with Noria, I'm sure Bennett will elaborate on it, but you guys are the lubrication experts the oil analysis, how to properly lubricate things, how to select what to lube, all those great things. That's where you guys excel. And a host of a whole bunch of other stuff that you guys do interactively, are actively involved in like the ICML guidelines and all those other great resources that the industry depends on. Although super brief, what can you tell us about yourself and how long have you been involved with lubrication?
1: Well, thank you for that introduction and those uh, comments about Noria and um, if I think about, you know, when I first got started, it's kind of a tough question because I could probably jokingly say going back to my days as a child, of course, um, I remember having hearing long conversations between my dad and my grandfather um, and because they were all in the field of tribology. And, you know, tribology, I mentioned, is, you know, it's about contamination control, oil analysis, lubrication. So I heard these topics growing up for quite a bit and they spent both of their entire careers in this field. Um, But if I think about myself, you know, I could go back to maybe the early 2000s where I spent a little bit of time at Noria. And at that time, I was beginning doing some research and learning about lubrication because I was trying to write an article, um, and I believe it was on uh, magnetic filtration. And so at that time, I was fascinated with magnets. And so I eventually wrote an article about how that can be an opportunity for lubrication. and, And that got published back in 2005. Um, and since then, you know, I went to school at Georgia Institute of Technology for my mechanical engineering degree. But I, I, one of the reasons why I selected Georgia Tech was because of a focus on tribology. They had a, a well known tribology department there. Um, and during that time, I also spent some, uh, you know, different periods of summers working in oil analysis laboratories, understanding that equipment, seeing the intricacies behind how it plays a role in reliability of equipment. And it does, it's amazing to see and how, the, how it all comes together. Um, and then I did spend a couple of years working for Navistar and if you're not familiar who they are, they, they're the parent company of International Truck and other brands out there. But um, I was a product design engineer focusing on engine designs and after treatment systems. Uh, but one of the interesting things I was involved in there was a study to optimize the oil drain intervals. Uh, with a major truck uh, industry. So that was pretty cool. Um, there's an article about that as well. Um, but for nearly the last 10 years, I've been working at Noria as a consultant um, and other roles, of course. And you know, my, my focus has been on performing with these LPD projects. So LPD stands for Lubrication Program Development. Um, and so we do these at hundreds of plants in all different industries. You know, It can be manufacturing, power plants, refineries, pulp and paper, chemical, you know, the list goes on. Um, and we get to hear not just, you know, how this program is developed at the plants, but, you know, what are the common challenges they experience? And they're putting a lot of investment in this as so they put their, their heart and soul into it for a period of time. And, and sometimes it's not so much about, you know, how hard is it to get lubrication right, because it can't be, but how easy it is to get it wrong. And, you know, we need to make sure we point on that quite a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of the clients I work with, you know, they're asking questions around lubrication program. How do we set this up? Why is it important? Why do we got to invest in filtering oil? We buy it. It's clean. Yeah. Right. They're asking these types of questions. And that's what I want to talk about is why is it so hard to get lubrication right? Like you said, it's so easy to get it wrong. But why do organizations struggle with lubrication?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, first off, it, it appears that Lubrication has an, an image problem, I'll call it. And, and a little bit of that and maybe is due to the inherent activities that are involved. Um, but then that gets amplified by how the culture is built around things that happen in maintenance. Um, and we'll get into that. But even when it, you know, it does get attention, and sometimes people do see the importance of lubrication, it still is not really well understood by those end users, the impact that the lubricant has on the equipment, you know, what really how important that is. And so what I've noticed is, you know, I, I specifically have been observing other successful areas of maintenance and reliability um, is, you know, how when there's a technology enabled tool involved, um, how that has an impact in driving change. Um, and that's just more than just the tool itself or the service, but what that, you know, creates as an indirect benefit. And this is where I feel like lubrication has a huge opportunity.
0: All right. Excellent. I agree. There's so many studies you can point to, whether it's from SKF, whether it's from you guys at Noria or other places that point to bad lubrication practices equals failures in the field. Yeah. There's no way around it. Um, and how much it contributes, you know, is, is absolutely massive. Yeah. But with that being said, why do organizations not look as look at lubrication as they should as a major focus as part of their maintenance reliability program? Why does it have that image or PR problem?
1: Well, if you think about it, you know, lubrication uh, isn't a topic that's necessarily exciting as vibration, let's say, or thermography, or even more recently with motion amplification, which I'll admit that's, you know, that's a pretty cool thing. Um, but just the sheer fact that the lubricant is messy to deal with, they're, they're, that just creates like this natural de- deterrent to specialize in that. Um, Let alone just, you know, messing with it at all. So whatever naturally interests people, uh, these will collectively create the culture within a maintenance team. And, And I would argue there are dozens of competing interests that the maintenance techs and others, other folks that will have an interest in to specialize in rather than lubrication. And, and lubrication is often treated as this entry level job, which I get. You know, some aspects of lubrication can be entry level, but the focus as the maintenance team as a whole, it needs to be more than that, and and not just the maintenance techs. You know, if you think about it, it, it may be an investment um, that is made by management. You know, how serious lubrication is treated uh, depends on how much they're going to invest in it. You know, for example, if you think about. Um, the conditions in which the lubricants are stored. You think about the lubricant storage area. And that's something I look at when I do lubrication assessments. You know, that's an obvious clue to me when I'm trying to determine how seriously they're going to treat lubrication at a plant. But it all comes down to some degree of knowledge, you know, how, how is knowledge uh, transferred there and, and how is, how training is conducted. Uh, but the, the truth is the important areas of lubrication is not intuitive. So even for those who have been the entry who have been in the industry for an entire career, it still is not intuitive.
0: Yeah. It, and I wonder why. And I think part of it too, as you mentioned, it's, you looked at as the new guy job. Yeah. Right. But when I started off in the field I'm an electrician, but we were responsible for doing the motors. Okay, fine. We'll lubricate motors. We were never taught in electrical school how to lubricate motors. Yeah. How did I? How do we lubricate stuff? Yeah. How my dad taught me: you squeeze grease till you see it come out of the bearing, then you're good to go. That's correct. Definitely not the right approach. Yeah, right? It's,
1: and it, it's definitely treated as an afterthought. You know, even going through a mechanical engineering degree at a major university, just the topics of lubrication, it didn't occur t- until I got into the you know, third year, I think. Um, and well, I'm talking about a mechanical engineering degree. So that tells you how much of an importance lubrication has or how much it, it doesn't have a focus in the education side where that's different than the actual importance it has in the machine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, you mentioned that there were some small things that could have a big impact on lubrication. What are those small things that we can do that's going to have a big impact?
1: Well, you know, lubrication... Is you know has all sorts of hidden threats. Um, and we need to be ready to observe some of those threats. And when they are properly observed, they can become an opportunity. So the threats and opportunities things, if you think about it with any kind of SWOT analysis. Um, and these aren't usually the things you can see. They're these small things that you can't just see. You have to be ready to observe in different ways, maybe with technology. And But if you do see it, and it's easy and sticking out at you, then that's probably too late. And the machine is... Probably going to be nearing failure. Um, but some of these small things could be just the adjustments we make to more appropriately, effectively inspect machines and right types of sight classes, let's say, um, if the machine has a sight class at all. But when it does, you know, is it even giving you the opportunity to look at the things the right way? Um, you know, use, using your own eyes and ears and everything else you can by walking up to the machine. Um, and that also plays a role in what is being taught to properly uh, know how to inspect for the right things, and it's, it's not as simple as what we obviously see by a, a low oil level. There's more to it than that, um, and so maybe another small thing is really just simply having good training. So if anyone's been through a three day training, and I, I certainly have because I'm an instructor for them, it's definitely a fire hose to the mouth, and um, how much of that you're going to retain. But if you if you really want to you know, make a difference, maybe dial that down to more bite-sized training that happens more frequently um, and bringing that awareness to the people. Uh, they don't know what they don't know. Right. Um, and so you know, let's talk about machines more specifically and contamination control, small things like particles. Particles become invisible to us without like a microscope, uh, about 40 microns. So imagine a 10-micron particle. These are incredibly damaging to machines. Um, well, that one. let's imagine one 10-micron particle in an oil, much smaller than we can see. On average, that particle is likely to go on to produce 20 more particles, wear particles in this case, um, before it eventually gets filtered out or settled out. And if you multiply that over time, and and it's surprising that machines don't fail sooner because of this this cycle of despair. But, you know, why did this particle get there in the first place? I mean, obviously, contamination can't be fully removed. It's kind of a part of just how machines are. But small changes to to maintenance practices can make a big impact in extending reliability of, of equipment. And, and that's just contamination. You know, a similar thing can be said about how we're selecting the, the right lubricant for the machine or how we're applying the lubricant to the machine or the way we're doing analysis um, and much more, of course.
0: Yeah, there's so many small things that can really drive it. You mentioned the contamination piece, and this is where I get a question is, when we start a lube program, do we start with training? Do we start with storage? Do we start with filtration? Where do we start? Because there's so many pieces that are almost dependent upon each yeah. other. How do we start? Well, first don't leave your brand new oil drums out in the sun and rain. Let's start there. And then we can figure out where we got to yeah, go. Yeah, but,
1: and that's a common one because I do see that quite a bit. And, um, but it's a, it's a reality check, you know, and all those things you just said, they're, they're, obviously worthy to be something to start with. um, But there are really endless of things you could do first, hardware solutions and tools you can buy. And knowing the right option is important. So this this is actually a question we get quite often um, because they do look to Noria to try to answer, you know, how are we going to do this? Um, So I would say you first need to consider the solutions that are proven to set up, not just a single improvement, but a series of improvements over time. Um, rather than just picking something randomly to start with. So, you know, so at NORA, we have something called the Ascend Assessment. I'll get to what Ascend is in a second. Um, and this is a common starting place because it creates a benchmark of every lubrication activity within the plant to determine if it's following best practice or if it's even being practiced at all. So, you know, this Ascend methodology, you know, we use it, it's kind of like our uh, North Star that helps us uh, make sure we're covering everything that's relevant to to lubrication. Um, it actually is um, illustrated like in this six life cycle stage chart. Um, really kind of interesting. Um, but it's not just the daily hands-on activities. It's also you know how things are being managed and what the the metrics are behind it. Um, but this, but any of this, however you start a lubrication program, um, being put together, it has to start with some degree of training, regardless if it's hardware changes or adjustments to daily practices. Without a level of training, anyone, everyone involved you know, won't have the understanding of why we're doing, the value behind it, and even having buy-in to being part of that change, because it has to be a collective experience. So this is kind of why I always kind of tie in the technology-enabled tools to kind of help create this interest and realign the focus when you are investing in the right things to keep it going.
0: Yeah, so you know, it sounds very similar to our approach when we're doing the larger maintenance reliability program. There's an assessment piece, there's a training piece, then we start getting into some of those other areas, filtration storage for example, which you guys have. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we overcome some of the restrictions for training and assessments given where we're, where we're at currently? Not every state is open, not every province or country is open. Mm-hmm. How do you overcome some of that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, of course, many organizations have had to adapt you know, to these limiting factors of this COVID-19 pandemic. And it's troubling, of course, but this really isn't the time to li- put that limitation on training. or in- implementing the, the very solutions which can actually save the organization quite a bit of money. Um, for example, you think about machinery and lubrication, oil analysis, those types of trainings um, have been offered entirely over these last 12 months with a live online format. At least that's what we're doing at Noria. Um, and this may not be a typical preference, I know, for many. People want to be in an in-person training, if that's a preference for most. Uh, because otherwise, you're having to watch on a TV or a computer. But... In reality, this technology has given us the oppor- more opportunities to do different things. Um, you know, we have hardware demonstrations and interactive activities to help you know, learn certain concepts, and we can take it in smaller smaller bits. And we have a brand new studio that we put together just shy of 12 months ago as the pandemic started because we knew we were going to get an uptick in all of this live online training. And it's been used almost every single week for for more training. Um and another great advantage has been that it's been easy for us to even include high-level experts on certain niche subjects. So as we're doing a training, if there's a certain thing we're about to get into, and we would like to, you know, call someone in that obviously has, you know, his whole career and expertise on a topic, he's going to be able to talk for thirty minutes to an hour, and that's that's great for the you know, participants, of course, because they get a variety of experiences and knowledge and background from the, from those who are talking and even those who are attending, attending the class itself that's interactive. Um, and of course, now the pandemic is seeming to be on the mend for many of us. And uh, you know, we are already scheduling more in-person trainings, but we now have learned so much from this experience um, that we're going to try our best to can, continue that through these in-person events. Even actually, in fact, right now, if you think about it, one of the opportunities is right now our studio is downstairs. We have Wes Cash conducting a training, but he has these Monday trainings that is for a a major lubricant supplier. And there's dozens of attendees around the world calling in every single Monday for a full day training on lubrication. And they started this back last year um, after the pandemic started um, and was like every Monday for a number of years. And they decided to do it all again this year for that same uh, uh, group of people all across their, their organization. So we have lots of organizations that are doing that. Um, but there's more than that. This is just training, of course. Um, we have other tools that we use to you know, enable, use technology-enabled solutions, even our assessments. you know, We've been able to do those through a virtual format. All
0: right, excellent. Yeah, I, we've done some assessments virtually, training virtually, same sort of thing. One, You learn a lot doing it that way, and it's probably going to have ripple effects through the classroom and on-site things. You're going to do things a little differently, a little bit better, a little faster, that type of thing. So it's a great learning experience. Mm -hmm. But it is still a challenge because, like you said, not everybody wants a virtual one. They want face-to-face, on-site, and that can be a challenge. Now, that also relates to part of the culture. Hmm. So how does culture fit into the lubrication program. I got my own perceptions, but I want to hear yours first.
1: Well, I mean, I would I would argue that it not just fits in, it's probably right at the center of lubrication. I mean, if you don't have culture right, you know, you know, where what are you trying to do here? So, I mean, think about machines if if when an unexpected machine failure occurs, let's say it's related to lubrication, the blame is rarely truly due because of some inherent flaw in the lubricant itself or even things like the machine design, or the environment, or the invo- invo- operating state, or you can go on. But you know, rather if you continue to ask yourself the you know the repetitive why, you know, why keep asking why until you figure out what that root causes. It typically comes down to some human induced error. The human was involved in something. I'm not to say that there was someone individually to blame. It's ra- it's more of a uh, a fact that instead of there's a culture you know, that behind it of a daily focus and, and a mindset that, that is probably, you know, a lack of protocols and standards that influence the practices behind it all. And you know, are those in the right place? Um, so training people with the right activities, giving them the technology and the tools to perform these activities um, scheduling the right amount of time to get them done because that's one thing I always get in my training. I'm, I'm telling people you need to do all these things right but they just say well we don't have enough time. Management's not giving us enough time. Okay well I mean I, I can't help you right now with that but I, if that's truly an issue we need to make sure that's that's solved. You know, or even monitoring the activities to, to provide the feedback on improving. You know, these are all crucial to the health of equipment and the success of the plant. So even you think obviously safety has always been a, you know, something that's given a lot of importance in, in the workplace. Um, this has given much attention and there's a culture behind this because culture has been cultivated around about avoiding um, safety issues and the results have obviously made a big difference. So for lubrication, we, we need to track you know, how these things align to uptime and what the man, man hours are per unit and making sure that not just, you know, one department is doing things right, but everyone's on the same page of what they need to be doing. So there's alignment and they we're kind of all on, on the same page. Habits take time, you know, built, changing your habits take time. And, and there has to be a belief that these things make a difference and make a difference. Um, so that's just a few things that come to mind. You know, I've obviously been to quite a few plants, lots of different industries. Um, but one thing's true that if you don't have the culture right, then it doesn't matter how much money you put into it, it's it's likely not going to succeed.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out Iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook, A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing. www.irridicio.com. I agree 100%. If you don't address those human issues or the management system issues that enable those human errors to take place, you don't have the culture that wants to invest in that sort of thing. We're not going to see the results. Changing culture is very, very difficult. It's not an easy thing. And organizations that don't focus on that and instead, oh, let's just buy filter cards. Okay, great. You buy filter cards. Do people actually use them? Do they change the filters when they're supposed to? Do they make sure the things are the different ends are clean or connections are clean when they hook them up? Do they do all those things? If you don't have the culture, it doesn't matter. But they're not going to do those things, right? Yeah, I, I've always seen this. Um,
1: so I agree. This, I've seen this odd uh, thing happen whenever I do lubrication assessments. It's like it's pretty common that they have just bought a bunch of filter carts and they're all still wrapped up and unused. I'm always scratching my head. It's like, I feel like I just saw this at a plant recently and you know, we, (laughs) I don't don't know what's going on. Like, why are these being used? And why did it just happen right before I came on site? (laughs) Anyways. Yep. Yep. Exactly.
0: It's, but it, it, culture is the centerpiece, whether it's lubrication, whether it's a bigger maintenance reliability program, if you don't get that right, you can throw money at all these little tactical things, but I don't think it's going to give you the results you want. Very much so. Now, speaking of results, what type of results should we expect if we have a focus on lubrication? And I'm not talking just one, but if we have a good holistic mm-hmm. program, what should we see? Improve safety, environmental,
1: downtime, what are the benefits? Man, it's all connected. I mean, I could argue or at least make comments about this all day. And But if you look at even things, simple things like reducing lubricant usage, of course, that's going to depend on the industry. If you have... If you're in an industry that has large equipment, say mining or, or steel, of course, there's going to be a huge savings on the lubricant. when You're not wasting the lubricant. Uh, of course, other in- industries that use a lot of smaller machines, manufacturing, let say, well, you're probably going to lean more on the lean side of things. You're not going to focus so much on that as the benefits. But overall, when you do lubrication right and the, the things that you're changing, it all comes into a, a, a hole where you're seeing optimized labor, you know, people are doing things the right way, not wasting time every day. And then, of course, since lubrication practices typically align to the, the root causes of common issues, um, you're going to see a reduction in, in, in repair costs over time because machines are not failing as often. We're not experiencing any of the beginning signs of those failure modes. So when lubrication is done right, well, in fact, you're actually going to be seeing less faults with vibration or less faults with thermography and other condition monitoring technologies because, you know, right things in lubrication will kind of solve those things first. So when you do lubrication right, and there's a focus there, you end up doing less firefighting, you know, having less chaotic activity of trying to get things uh, suddenly, you know, breaking down and having to deal with it because it focuses on root cause. You're going from a reactive state to more of a proactive. State. Now, you're never going to be fully proactive and predictive, but you try to, to strive in that direction. And, and, the, and, the, and, you know, come back to culture, of course. And when things are looking better and the machines are failing less and the activities you're doing isn't so much of a firefighting sense, everyone's happier and people are nicer and, and it feeds into a better culture as a result. So it's really uh, this, this, this healthy cycle that occurs when when there's a benefit from these proactive activities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it has this ripple effect, less breakdowns equals less firefighting, which means more time to do more proactive things, which means less breakdowns. And it's this awesome cycle and morale goes up. Everyone's got to get started, right? Um, That's the challenge, taking those first couple steps and getting it started. Mm -hmm. Now when some people and some organizations look at a lubrication program, they see all these different pieces, you know, Training, filtration, proper application, oil analysis, all these wonderful things, they get overwhelmed. Mm, yes. How long does it actually take to get a lubrication program in place? This is not something we can flip a switch and have it on in a week or so, I'm guessing. Of course. This is probably more of a journey.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of describing it too. So, you know, I, I'd probably at first have to ask, okay, well, how well is this this uh, initiative being planned out, you know, of course, what is considered even in place? You know, what is the result? What is your goal with all of this? Because, you know, these, these developments are typically not just a journey, like you say, but it's a continuous effort because once you reach what you thought was the, the end goal, there, there there's some new things in place and and areas that have become more obvious to improve. Um, But, you know, if many times that we're involved in these lubrication program developments, um, we're just simply trying to right a ship. You know, the ship's in the wrong direction entirely. We need to right this ship and, and make sure they're moving and, and they know where north is. And so I would say that, you know, it probably typically takes a plant somewhere between one to three years to really tackle uh, what they need to with lubrication. But the, but the brunt of the activity is really taking place over that first three to six-month period. Um, but that, that's even with a planned approach. You know, if you're not planned, you know, and, if you do end up becoming successful, it could take quite a bit longer. Um, but uh, otherwise you get discouraged because you end up finding barriers that's, that make you feel like you're not succeeding and you start going backwards. So there's all kinds of analogies I could talk about here, but I've, I've seen them all and we need to make sure that we have a good plan of, of attack with all of this.
0: Yeah. I think that goes back to, you know, all these types of programs you're implementing, you know, a lot of upfront training resources, planning out the project, working on the change management side of things, your risks that are potentially your barriers that you're going to, how are you going to overcome those? That's all that upfront work. Then once you get that, then you have to work on the culture and the accountability piece to make sure people are implementing and following the processes and all these things. And I'm glad to say you, you, you didn't say it was, you know, a couple months it's in place (laughs) because it is that journey. Like you said, it's that one to three years. It's going to take time to get this in place and more importantly, make it sustainable. We can make something work by putting a bunch of focus on it. But if we want to make it sustainable, we got to put all these other measures in place and provide that accountability. If anyone
1: says it only takes two months and they either don't know what they're talking about or they're trying to fool you into something else. Um, But, yeah, you're right. It has to be sustainable. And that's because you need to be ready for making more changes. We're making change today because of what we know currently needs to be done. But years from now, there are going to be new things that become apparent to us that need to be changed. And we don't know those yet. So you need to be developing a culture to be ready to change at any moment in time when, in, when there's justification.
0: Yep. And thinking back to one company I visited, would have been last year now, right before COVID started, they had an amazing lubrication program. One of the best ones I've ever seen. You know who ran it? <laughs> a senior mechanic. And he had two or three other senior mechanics and they ran the entire thing. It was one of the best programs ever. Reason why? Not only did they own it, they had all the support of their peers and it wasn't some top-down, push-down thing. It's they developed, they own it, and it was fantastic. And I think that's where that culture comes in again.
1: You're right. I completely agree.
0: Now, what do you think makes the biggest difference in being successful with one of these lubrication programs? There's lots of different pieces. What's the magic thing?
1: Well, honestly, I think you just answered it. (laughs) It's having a lubrication Champion, someone who is going to take ownership. You know, there has to be a person to point out that this is his program. And, you know, he's, he doesn't have to be someone who has been there for years or decades with tons of experience. It doesn't have to be that person. It can be someone that's actually pretty green to it all. But if they have the drive and then the, the interest to make change, I'd much prefer someone like that to drive a lubrication program than someone who has years of experience and doesn't have the drive anymore, doesn't have the time, um, because that's not going to make the difference here. So it's really a simple question. Is a lubrication champion someone who's willing to not only learn themselves, what needs to be done, but help convey those messages to other people, become um, you know, someone of an inspiration to others to make those adjustments. And eventually they also have to be responsible owning it with, even when things are wrong, there needs to be someone to talk to about that and make it, make it aware. But, um, so my short answer there is lubrication champion.
0: All right. Excellent. Now with that being said, what's the one thing you want our audience to take away from this conversation? What do you want them to go do, learn, try, apply, whatever it is?
1: (laughs) Um, put single point lubricators in all your machines and walk away. (laughs) no I'm just kidding you know don't do that oh, no. <laughs> um, <I> would, <laughs> um, obviously actually single point lubricators are pretty cool because they there's been some new technologies that developed in that area and so you should you, you should look into that but anyways you know is it the is it the ultrasound monitored ones? there's one like that there's those there's some out there that are coming out soon um, that are related to having bluetooth technology to you know work with them with a mobile app and that kind of thing and uh, there's a lot of really cool technologies of single pump. I'm not saying at all that it's going to take away what you need to do as a lubricator on the machine, uh, but it's a it's a huge area of opportunity.
0: Yep, yep. I agree. Uh,
1: oh, I forgot. So, I, what I, is the I, real I one? The thing. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, I guess if I think about it, um, I got to think about the low hanging fruit that I typically address during these assessments, and and it could be small stuff like. You know, making an adjustment to how lubricants are being transferred with the proper top-up containers, or realizing all the opportunities in which machines can become contaminated, having the right breathers. If you have the same breather that's been on the machine for 15 years, I mean, do you know what's happening to that? That's cause that's a that's a disease to your machine. Um and of course, come back to inspections. I think this is huge because um you know we have a a supercomputer in our brain we have these high-tech sensors all over our body we just need to know what we're, we're supposed to do with those when we walk up to a machine and if our machine isn't ready as well to allow us to inspect it with the right inspection devices um then you're, you're losing an opportunity there so if you want to you know, really make sure that you're taking advantage of what resources we already have in a facility, that the people, um, and making us some small investments, you can make a big difference with the right inspections. But typically that comes down to, to knowledge. And then going back to that, even the previous question of the lubrication champion, you know that's someone that everyone can lean on. You know, whenever there's a, a question or uncertainty with whether or not they're they're doing something correct, you need someone to lean on. And if you don't have that person, then you're constantly going to be struggling whether or not you're doing things right or wrong, and you start developing the wrong the wrong complexes with um, you know what what the struggles are. So having a good lubrication champion, and maybe it's not someone on site, but it could be people from different organizations uh, or con- you know, resources even that. Uh, Are not just a person, but out there to give you some answers. That's got some very, very important.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, you provided some great insights to why getting lubrication right is so hard. You know, lots of things to consider, lots of things to overcome. But before we go, where can people find out more about you? What events or activities are you involved with? Um, I think Reliable Plant is now October, if I remember correctly, or towards the end of the year. What else do you have coming up?
1: Yeah, we're, uh, yeah it's going to be scheduled it's October. <laughs> I forget as well. And we had to push it, of course, because of COVID. But, um, you know, for anything coming up that I'm involved with, I usually post some things on on LinkedIn about what I'm directly involved with. Or, I mean, I, I often have some webinars on Loop PM. Loop PM, um, you know, something I've been kind of developing the last two or three years and a lot of we have lots of dozens of customers who are using it to manage the scheduling and planning behind um, all the lubrication activities, building routes, and managing. It's a it's basically a lubrication expert in a web based application in, or mobile application, and um, so it's really new. A lot of people don't know about it yet, but I'm, so I'm doing a lot of webinars on it. If you're interested, there's I, at is There's more information. Um, but I, am always involved in doing trainings and other things. And a lot of that information is also, um, usually available at noria.com as well. So there's all kinds of stuff. And I guess you don't, you don't care about my, the next time I'm playing tennis or something like that, but that's just my professional schedule. <laughs> all
0: right. Perfect. We'll make sure to put links to all these different things in the show notes so people can easily click on it, get access to it, find all these things. Now, One of my favorite questions is, what's your favorite resource? What's your go-to resource for lubrication, culture, maintenance, whatever it may be? What's your go-to resource?
1: Well, I'm going to sound a little biased and just to kind of uh, uh, note the beginning of this because I I do get asked that question and I can't help but answer, it's an accurate answer, um, but one of my most favorite resources is simply our own website, MachineryLubrication.com. And the reason that's the case is because if you're if you're like me, I don't have a great memory. You know, I, I can read things all day, and just a small portion of that will will stay in my brain, and and I, I constantly struggle with that. But I can overcome that by having good resources uh, that are readily available at my fingertips, and of course, the internet helps with that. Um, but over the last you know tw- over twenty years, Noria has been publishing articles and all kinds of video content, all sorts of stuff. Every bit of that, or just about every bit of that. And it has been put onto machinelubrication.com. I'm talking tens of thousands of articles and white papers and videos. All of that's there for free and easily searchable. In fact, if you're anyone that's in the lubrication field or just a reliability field, whenever you're trying to learn something and you type it in Google, you're more than likely going to see re- machinery lubrication as one of the top links. Because there's just so much content there that Google is constantly uh, seeing that as relevant information. These are well-written articles by experts in the field. I'm not talking just random stuff. Like these are professionals putting these together. And it's funny because even the articles that I've written years ago, um, I'm needing an answer. And I find out that I'm reading my own article five years later, um, teaching myself something just simply because I can't sim- seem to keep it in my brain. Um, but you know, beyond that, you know. I, I'm not huge into books. I have a lot of books, but I don't ever really often read books from like front to, you know, from cover to cover, or anything like that. I'm just I have a lot of reference materials, um, and I wish I could you know give you um, insight into a couple of books that I like that were actually written by my grandfather. You know he he was he wrote a lot of books on contamination control and fluid power. He he wrote dozens of books, but one of my favorites of his was proactive maintenance uh, for mechanical systems. Um, and he has another one that's called fluid contamination control. Both are always on my desk because I'm constantly going to them. Um, and the reason why those are so well-written and some of the other books that we have at, at Nori, is because, um, they're more practical. He was a, a doctor, a professor. He taught at the Oklahoma state university and he had to ch- convert a lot of this knowledge that he was putting together into a practical, uh, way. Um, to teach it in, 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 at a university and, and convey these messages. And, and some of even the books that, you know, my dad has written over the years have d- has done that even further, making these concepts a lot more practical to digest rather than just like, complex formulas or difficult terminology that can stump even the most expert of people out there. Um, so I like things that are practical. You know, we even have something called the Machinery Lubrication Reference Guide, which I call it a flipbook because it has all these little flips that come out, and you can see all these different charts and reference materials. It's not a textbook; it's a reference guide, um, and something you can put in your back pocket. And so, those are the kind of things I like and, and, and recommend to people because um, we often don't have the time anymore to read books from cover to cover. You know, we need to be ready to find resources quickly and help that solve problems today.
0: Yep, yeah, and especially with the lack of travel. Yeah, being able to sit down on an airplane and read for three, four hours—that has been dramatically reduced, at least in my, yeah, in my case. So knowing where to find some of these things is super, super important. So I'll make sure to link to lubricate machinerylubrication.com and some of these other books you mentioned. I'll reference those as well. Um, I know I got quite a few res- resources from Noria on my shelf. Those books lubrication is not my expertise, so I use them as references, just kind of like you mentioned. I'm not reading those cover to cover, but I use them as great references. So, um, You guys put out great content, and I'm always thankful for that.
1: Well, I appreciate that, James, and thank you so much for this podcast today. Um, I think it's a good topic to review. Of course, I could elaborate on many other things, but Um, I thought this was good to talk about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be sure to get you back to talk about some of this other stuff like loop PMs and some other stuff in the future. So thank you for taking the time today.
1: Anytime. Thanks a lot, James. I would like to thank
0: you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.irrideshield.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with
1: Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.